0: So, I love grandparenting. So, one thing that that you will hear Vera say all the time is, thank you so much. It's like, you know, so her mommy and daddy are teaching her how to be polite and respond properly, right? She can't say thank you. She says thank you. And then she adds this little so much on the end. So, it's thank you so much. I just love it, right? And so, so we learn as an, as, as, as we are growing up. We try to teach our kids these manners so they don't embarrass us, right? So I know we say it's for their own good, but we just want people to love our kids. And so we teach them to say thank you and please and you're welcome and be kind and excuse me for whatever. <laughs> and so we have, we have become accustomed to saying thank you. Interesting how that fades as we get older sometimes. Like when you hold the door for somebody, you assume they're going to say, thank you. And if they don't, you get to hit them with the door as they walk through because that's what Jesus would do because he's trying to teach them how to love the father. Um, But, you know, we, we, we have grown accustomed as we get older to saying the words, but sometimes there's not always a connection between what we say with our mouth and what we feel in our heart. So Luke chapter 17, there's this incredible story. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be starting, I think, in verse 11. Luke chapter 17. If you have a, a phone app or your iPad or something like that, electronic device, uh, Luke is, is the third book in the New Testament, and um, there's, there's the, the, the four first books in the New Testament. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're known as the Gospels, and they all tell the story of the ministry of Jesus Christ here on earth from a different perspective. We won't get into all of that, but they were written to different audiences, and so they all come from a different perspective. And then obviously the authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See, I'm the Bible scholar. I know this stuff. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the ones who wrote it, and, and they all come from a different perspective. Like, I love John, right? John acts like he was the only disciple that Jesus liked, right? So, so like, in, in his description of himself, like, when he had an interaction with Jesus, he would say, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was part of the inner circle kind of a thing. So, Luke comes at it from, from a very different perspective. Luke was an educated man. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. He traveled with Paul. And so, although I don't know that Luke was present when all of these things happened, I think that he learned of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he intended to record it in a different manner. And so he writes the book of Luke from a different perspective. I enjoy the book of Luke. Um, it's interesting the, 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 because he was a, he was a doctor, he was educated. So he comes at it from a little bit of a different perspective and he tells the story in Luke chapter 17 of of a grateful leper, and there's ten of them, and so we're we're embarking on this little three week series called Thanks and Giving, and we are going to talk about the importance of gratitude, and then eventually we're going to get into on the third week how gratitude ought to affect our generosity, and that's kind of where we're going with this series. But if you would with me, uh, take a look at. Luke chapter 17, a great story here, and we're gonna kind of get into some depth with it and kind of just read through the text and let the text speak for itself, and then I'll share with you some things that I've learned um, about some of the customs and such, and then we'll make some application at the end, okay? So let's read verse 11. It says this, "'And it came to pass, as he,' that's Jesus, "'went to Jerusalem, "'that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee.'" Pause. Pause. Since Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem. So there was a change in his ministry direction where he began to minister more in the city of the well the region of Galilee. And 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 the focus is going to Jerusalem. Because he's going to go up to Jerusalem and when he goes up to Jerusalem that's where he's going to celebrate Passover. And then the next day he's going to be Crucified, So he knows from Luke chapter 9 until the end of that gospel that his, his ministry is coming to a close. So you understand that's already in him, that's on his heart, and he is ministering as he is going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So it kind of adds a little depth here as we read that he is going up into Galilee to Jerusalem. But interestingly, it says here that he is going through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. So if you know much about the Samaritans, the people who lived in Samaria, they were half-breeds, to put it coarsely. And they were hated by the Jews. They were called dogs. And there was absolutely no relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans on any positive level. There is a story in the New Testament about Jesus talking to a woman at a well. Maybe you recall that. And she was known as the Samaritan woman. And before that happened, Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. And all of his disciples were like, huh? Why would you want to do that? It's because he wanted to meet the Samaritan woman, share the gospel with her. And so Jesus didn't differentiate. In fact, the fact that he is going up in between Galilee and Samaria is a beautiful picture of him being willing to minister to both the Jews and who would be considered the non-Jews. We only have to verse 19. They're not all going to take that long. That was just verse 11. Verse 12. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. So I wish we could take more time to go into leprosy. It is an incredible disease that parallels the sin nature that we all were born with. There is so much here, but there was, it was a terrible disease, and there were several different types of leprosy. And a lot of times it would kill your nerve endings. You wouldn't feel anything. You wouldn't know that you were hurt or that something was burning you, it, was, it would create uh, dead tissue. Um, parts of your body would fall off, starting with your outer extremities, your toes and fingers, and work its way. It was a horrible flesh-eating disease that would go from the inside out, kill your nerves. And it wasn't painful, necessarily. It was just, there was no cure. So you were going to die. Depending on what version of leprosy you had, you were going to die anywhere from three to five years or five to nine years, depending on what version of leprosy you had. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. there were were customs put in place if you had leprosy. Obviously, you couldn't live around people, so they actually had a camp outside the city where all the lepers would live. And that's why as Jesus enters into the city, these people are calling to him from afar off because they could not get anywhere near him. In fact, if you had to go into town or be around anybody else, you had to completely cover yourself and you had to scream out, unclean, unclean, so that everybody would know to get out of the way because they didn't want to have anything to do with you. What a horrible disease to have in that day with no known cure. Verse 13. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, I love that, he didn't just hear them, he saw them. He said unto them, Go, show yourselves unto the priests, and it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. So that's an odd thing to say. Go show yourself to the priests. Well, let's, let's again understand where all of this is coming from. So back in, in the time of Moses, you had the Mosaic Law. So there were all of these customs that were put into place. So how do you deal with somebody who has leprosy? So it was all spelled out for them. If you read back in the book of Leviticus, I I don't suggest that right now. It's a little warm in here. You'll go to sleep. But there's, there's a lot of customs in there that say, if somebody has this disease, go to the priest. And the priest would determine if it's this disease or that disease. And then he'll mark the area. And then you come back to him a week later. And he'll take a look at it. And then he determines whether or not it's contagious, not contagious. And then if you have leprosy, here's what you do to, to, to certify the fact that you've been cleansed. Here's the deal, right? Nobody had ever been cleansed of leprosy. Until the time of Jesus. It, had, it, had, it, it was such a dreadful disease that it was known as a messianic miracle. In other words, the only person who could heal leprosy, according to Jewish tradition, was the Messiah. Because it had never been healed up until the time of Christ. Does that give you goosebumps? So like, so like this wasn't the first leper Jesus healed either. And so what Jesus is telling them to do is to go to the priest and show that you've been cleansed. How awesome is that? But he didn't do anything, right? He didn't do anything. He just told them, so they have leprosy, and he says, go show yourself to the priest. And then when did they actually get cleansed? When they went. Because the Bible says, as they were going, they were healed of their leprosy. So here's what's great. Luke does not record that when Jesus spoke to them, they were healed. Jesus records that when they went, they were healed. Now, Jesus did all kinds of things to heal people, right? He touched some people. He spoke some people. One person just grabbed a piece of his clothing and was healed. So there's all kinds of ways that Jesus healed. What I find interesting here is that he didn't heal them with just his words. It was mixed with their faith. So the Bible clearly states that as they went. So they look down, right? They've got leprosy. And you want us to what? You want us to, go into t- you want us to go to where the priest is and show ourselves to him? And the Bible says that as they exercised that faith, as they were on their way, they were cleansed. So here's, the, here's a quick truth. Belief does not exist in a vacuum. Faith is exhibited in what we actually do. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the hall of faith. It starts off with this beautiful definition of faith and then goes into story after story, character after character of people who acted upon their faith. It says, by faith, Moses did such and such, right? By faith, Abraham did such and such. And so what it's saying is that faith was directly connected to what somebody then did. I love what James said in James chapter two, verse 17. He says this, even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. So, so reason with me here, right? So what James is saying is that if our faith doesn't produce any type of action, from the faith that we have, it's dead. So, you, so so here's the thing. So like, here we are in church on Sunday. I love having you here, by the way. I want you to know that. But your faith is not for Sunday alone. Your faith is for Monday, right? So we need to take our Sunday faith and see how that works on Monday. And... Tuesday and all the way to Saturday. So the idea is that the faith that we say we believe, if it does not reflect itself into how we live and what we do, it's dead faith. So here's the thing. You can have faith and not do anything. It's just dead. Your faith is dead. Like if you're not, if you're not exercising faith in the real life that you have, like, so, so here's the thing, where are you trusting God? Where are you stepping out of the proverbial boat? Like, how are, you, how are you testing your relationship with the Lord? How is it that you're living faith in an experiential way in your life? So it's like, here's the thing, we, we love the fact that, that Jesus died for our sins. We love the fact that we can have a home in heaven. We love the fact that he can make our lives so much better because of this incredible relationship. But it's almost like we're good enough. Like, that's good enough. Like, like, I'm okay with where I am right now. But what God is doing is he's calling you to exercise your faith in your relationships, in your finances, in your service to other people. Like, where is that happening in your life right now? Or is your faith really lonely, <laughs> being dead and alone? I want my faith to be alive. But be careful. Because when you start praying, like, God, exercise my faith, things might happen, right? So I remember when I lived in Texas and, and I felt like there was another chapter of my life that needed to be written and I began to pray that God would change my heart or change my location. That's how I ended up in Virginia. And then like four years ago, Melissa and I are up at camp with the kids and we're having some, some time together and we're talking, you know, because I was the assistant pastor here and we're talking, you know what? Our life is just really good right now. Like, I don't feel like we've really been challenged much lately I should have said it quieter, like, because <laughs> God heard that, right? And then Randall stepped down and I became the pastor. You talk about a challenge. God was, so, it, but, I, but, but here's the, 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 the phenomenal thing is that, is that when that happens, it not only increases what you get to do for the Lord and the kingdom of heaven, it increases and develops your relationship with the Lord on a level that was impossible before you stepped out on faith. And so my encouragement to you is like, where are you being challenged to trust the Lord in your life? Please hear me this morning. Take a look at your schedule. Take a look at your relationships. Take a look at your checkbook. Is everything a nice, neat package that you don't really need God to do anything? Are you living with a dead faith? Like you come to church and everything's good, but in reality, what we need is to exercise our faith so that it becomes a living faith. Verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. <laughs> that, that, that term loud voice literally in the Greek is megaphoneo. Megaphone right? Big noise. This guy like was super happy about being healed. And I'm sure the other nine were as well, but where are the other nine going? They're going to go show themselves to the priest more than likely. This is my guess. They were all Jews. The Samaritan didn't necessarily feel like he needed to follow the tradition of the Jews. Perhaps that's why he turned around and went to go see Jesus instead. But the nine others just keep on walking. The one fella turns around And verse 16 says, and fell down on his face, at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that returned to give glory to God, save this one stranger or foreigner. He was the Samaritan. So please note, healing still occurred for the nine. Jesus didn't go back on his word and said, oh, you didn't say thank you. I'm going to take it all away. You got leprosy now. How terrible would that have been? Jesus healed all 10 of them. He's just making note of the fact that only one came back to express his gratitude. And how typical is that though? Like we get wrapped up in what we get from Jesus, but ignore Jesus. Like we're really thankful for the stuff that we get, Or the relationships that we have? Jesus, not so much. And these nine other lepers were satisfied with just being healed and went on their way. And they did not, in my opinion, necessarily recognize Jesus as the son of God. But we very clearly see that this one Samaritan leper who was healed clearly sees that Jesus Christ was the son of God. But we see this all over in the ministry of Jesus where where they were looking for somebody, like the Jews were looking for somebody to give them free food, right? They were looking for someone to heal their diseases. And they'll take the food and they'll take the healing, but they just don't want any more of Jesus. it just makes me sick. To think that's how we have become and I know that that's a broad net that I'm casting here and I'm not and I'm not trying to guilt you into anything I just maybe let's just do a heart check like are we good with everything Jesus has given us but we're not really good about who Jesus is to us like we're good with what we've been given and we feel like it's our right to spend our money however we want to And use our resources however we want to. But like we're not really good at letting Jesus invade our life anymore. Listen, Jesus is disruptive. Jesus makes things happen in your life. And the more that you give yourself over to him, the more is going to be forced to change. And a lot of people don't like that. But here's the deal, right? So, So what if this was going through the Samaritan's mind? Well, if Jesus can heal me from leprosy. What more can he do with my life? Like how much better can he make every other area of my life? Like when Jesus took Peter out on the, on the water and told him to, 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 to put his nets over on the one side of the boat and they hauled in a great bunch of fish. What if Peter had never been a disciple? What if, what if Jesus just wanted Peter to be a better fisherman? Like how much better would his fishing business have been if Jesus was helping him with his fishing business? So I don't know what area of your life you're like, yeah, I'm good, God. You know, you saved me. I got my fire insurance. I'm not going to hell. Right? I'm good. Just don't affect any other area of my life. No, no, no. Let, let's, let's flip this around. How much better would your life be if Jesus was in every area of your life? So instead of like putting him in a little box and just taking him off the shelf and opening him up so he can bless you when you need it, and then you put them back in the box and put it back on the shelf and be like, okay, I'll call you when I need you. And now we live the rest of our life as though we're not even saved. Like we don't even have a relationship with him because we don't really want him to affect any other area because we got this under control. Oh, oh until something bad happens. And then it's why, God, did you do this to me? That's not a relationship. That's not how you treat your wife. Let me rephrase that. That's not how you should treat your wife, right? That's not how you want your kids to treat you. It's a relationship. God, help us as believers, as followers of Jesus, to be more than the nine. To not just be satisfied with what we've been given by Jesus but want to know Jesus more. Verse 19 says this: And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Don't mistake that for the healing. The healing had already taken place. I believe this was his, introdu- his introduction to eternal life. I believe this was the relationship. This was, like, I think we're going to see this leper in heaven, and he'll have all his body parts. Because he's already healed. And Jesus didn't do anything halfway. Like Jesus didn't just like heal him and then leave scars. It was, it was fresh skin. He's going to be perfect. And we're going to see this guy in heaven. Because here where he says you've been made whole. I really believe that was his salvation happening. Because he recognized Jesus for who he was. The son of God. So here's a few truths to pull out of this. And, uh, and the, the first of all. We are created to express gratitude. We are created for gratitude. That's how God has made us. The Bible says that all of creation praises him. We are his creation. It should be a natural thing for us to do to praise the Lord. Romans 121 says this. It says, besides that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. So Paul is writing to the church of Rome expressing His concern about a group of people who knew who God was, like they knew about God. They had information, but they were not thankful, but become vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. They knew full well who God was, but they chose to not honor him as who he was gratitude is is just expected it's what it's who we should be then i would say this that gratitude acknowledges the grace that we've been shown going back to that word thankful that i mentioned in verse 16 this i love this so much in the greek so i'm not trying to sound like a scholar when i reference the greek it's because the new testament that we hold was originally written in greek And so the best that we could, you know, we've translated from the Greek into English. Um, and, and there's different translations out there. So what seems to help a lot of times is is when you go back and read what the original Greek word was, and then you figure out what all the possible meanings of that are, then you look at what is written here, and it kind of creates more depth. One of my favorite study tools is called the Amplified Bible because the Amplified Bible does that. It takes, it takes words like a verse like this, and it kind of like expands it. It blows it up. It amplifies it. And it lets you know like the different possible meanings of a word. But this word thanked is the word, check it out, eucharisteo. Where we get the word eucharist. And here's, let's take it a little bit further. It's made up of two words, "you" and christeo. Or charis, which mean good and grace. So the idea here is that what he is thanking God for are the good graces that he's been shown. And so what I love about this is is when we express gratitude to the Lord, it is our acknowledgement of the grace that we have been shown. Like we are getting something that we don't deserve here. And that forces humility into our life. You know, one of the best things you can do for your kids is to teach them to be thankful people. Because there are few things worse than an arrogant teenager Just the way that it is. Like, and, 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 I, and, and, and this is the honest truth. There is nothing sweeter than a young person who is grateful. But there's very few things more bitter than someone who doesn't truly appreciate what they've been given. And by the way, parents, I think the way to make that happen is to model it well. We have so much to be grateful for. And the third truth I want to pull out of there is, is that genuine gratitude leads us to Jesus. Like, like there, is, there is something about true gratitude, genuine gratitude that forces us into the presence of Jesus Christ just like it did this leper. I'll say this, that gratitude led this healed man into the presence of Jesus And the second thing I want to mention about that is that he recognized both his healing and the healer. So here's the thing. We get wrapped up and absorbed in the gift, not the giver. And I'm asking you this morning to focus on the person who's responsible for all that you have. And I know we're, we're running short on time here, but God is the source of all that is good in your life. Recognize him as such. And then finally, we'll close with this. Gratitude takes intentionality. So we have to, on purpose, be grateful. We have to intentionally do this. So we are made for this. It leads us to Jesus. So let's start saying thank you more often and more frequently. It truly is a decision. It's something that we do on purpose. Psalm 9 verse 1 says this, I will give thanks to the Lord. With all my heart, I will tell of all your wondrous deeds Here's what I'm seeing in this verse. It needs to come out of your mouth. Like it's not enough, in my opinion. It's not, it shouldn't stop with just, like in your brain, you're going, oh, that was nice. It needs to come out of your mouth. There's something about you expressing your gratitude with the mouth that God gave you. There is something contagious about it. Right? When you are a thankful person, it's gonna be natural for your family to express gratitude. You can be the one employee that doesn't complain about the boss. Unless he's really a jerk, then it's okay. I'm just saying, all good things come from above. And I think that we should express our gratitude. Be the one person who is contagious with their gratitude. You're not just thankful for your wife because she cooks you a good breakfast, right? You're not just thankful for your super handsome husband, whatever you got. (laughs) You're not just thankful. You are thankful to the God who provided them to you. You are thankful to the God that gave that to you. And when that comes to your mind, that person, that thing, that item, that event, I want you to write it on that card, and then, and then Whitney's going to be at the door with a basket, and just throw those in the basket on the way, and then we're going to put them up on the wall. And I want you to consciously think of something that you are incredibly thankful for. And if you're like me, like you could fill up both sides of the leaf and, you know, in really tiny print. There's so much, and that's fine, but just, just try and come up with something. So here's a few practical suggestions that you can begin to deliberately, on purpose, intentionally incorporate gratitude in your daily life a couple ideas keep a journal write five things a day in your journal between now and thanksgiving that you're thankful for how about setting aside a time with god every day for five minutes preferably in the morning where you just spend that time thinking about the things in your life that you have to be grateful for can you imagine what a difference that would make in your day like you might not even need coffee That was not in my notes. That was not from God. I'm taking that out. But just spend that time thinking of things that you have to be grateful for. Hey, how about this? Expand your before-the-meal prayer. Like instead of, you know, God is good, God is great, which is great, but let's expand that a little bit, and let's think of things that we're thankful for, like people around the table. Try and make it as genuine as possible. And then write a thank you note to God. That might, that's, that's not necessarily my thing. But that might be your thing. Like I, maybe you're more expressive than I am. And you would think, yeah, let me just sit down and write a thank you note to God. But those are just some practical ways for you to be able to express on a regular basis your gratitude to God. I want you to develop an attitude of gratitude. A deep appreciation and understanding for the grace that we have been shown on a daily basis. I want it to become a part of you. I want it to be like second nature to you, that you're grateful for every person that God brings into your life, for everything that happens to you, and it becomes just a natural outpouring out of your life. Because some of you look like you've been sucking on persimmons. Like like there, there, there ought to be a difference that Jesus makes in your life, but you're not acknowledging it. Like you're not there, you're not making it a part of your life. And this gratitude ought to be just an overflow of the grace that you have experienced. And then here's the cool thing, right? What happens is when you express all of that gratitude and it just like oozes everywhere out of you, it's just like you're just that person, it becomes contagious to the people around you. And it begins to affect the life that you live and the people that you live it with and the environment that you create. So intentional gratitude is what we're after. Let's pray, and then James will come up and lead us in a dismissal chorus. Father, we love you, and we are so thankful and so grateful. And help us to acknowledge the giver of the gifts and the goodness that you've shown and the grace that you've shown that we don't deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.